You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Hey there, all you triathlon studs and studettes. This is Brett Blankner with another great episode of Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Hey, on this show, we have a lot of cool news and a great interview with some of the guys behind Diamond Bikes. And Diamond Bikes are also in the news as well by picking up sponsorships with Jordan Rapp and Jesse Thomas, both really big names in the triathlon pro ranks. So that's going to be really cool. We'll cover more news in a second. Let me tell you about Diamond Bikes. That is a beam bike. They used to be really popular about 10, 15 years ago with um, Soft Ride was a big brand and Zip made them. And we get into it in the interview. Uh, what happened, uh, the UCI banned these bikes because they're because <laughs> they're too fast and so for a long time uh, nobody was riding them and uh, they just didn't sell very well because you couldn't ride them in UCI events and now that there are more I think there's more triathletes than there are UCI cyclists and uh, TJ Tollickson who is a pro and has an engineering background started riding an old zip used to make these bikes ZIPP used to make these bikes and he started riding an old zip and in wind wind tunnel testing it was just insane how much faster they are and uh, he started bringing his own brand to life and called it Diamond Bikes and the cool thing about Diamond Bikes uh, like I said is a beam bike so there's no tube between the seat post where the seat post goes and the bottom bracket of the bike and then there's no seat stays so it looks like a flying v and they're really really cool and there's a whole lot of engineering going on back there on how that bike stays together and how it works so i talked with two of the guys at diamond bikes for oh man almost an hour i think about how they're all put together how they test them how they do everything with these bikes how they build them like Oh man, we cover everything. Why they keep the carbon in cold storage. There's a really good reason why. It's pretty neat. And I'm a bike nut and a materials and engineering and physics nut. So I like I like this stuff a lot. So it's a really cool interview. It's really an honor to have them on the show. And also, yeah, they just made the news for signing Jordan and Jesse. So let's go ahead and cover lots of triathlon news here in the news segment. Okay, so the deal with Diamond Bikes and Jordan and Jesse is a five-year deal. That's a long time. And Jordan actually wrote up a good blog post on why he chose Diamond. And Diamond's uh, D-I-M-O-N-D. And I want you to keep in mind that all the rest of the news stuff I'm about to tell you all have links and such. Pictures, images, videos news stories, linked pages, all on zentrathlon.com. I'm actually reading you the news off of zentrathlon.com where I collect them over the period of uh, a show. And so you can go and find these news stories right now. Okay, so some really cool headphones made it to CES. They were a Kickstarter project. They're uh, 
made for sports. They're waterproof, water resistant, sweat proof, all that stuff. And they're Bluetooth and they, uh, they don't have a cord in between them. So it's kind of like a hearing aid that goes inside your ear uh, on both sides and they do a ton of other stuff. Um, heart rate and, uh, uh, they got a motion sensor in it so it can do cadence and things like that. So, uh, definitely go check those out. Uh, Heli Fredrickson is, Hella Fredrickson <laughs> is sponsored. Um, well, she's a spokesperson for them. And, uh, while I was watching the video, she popped up and I'm like, Oh, that's Hella. And there was a quick, uh, blurb about how much, uh, training she does in a week. And it is, uh, swimming. She swims six to eight times, which is 25 to 30, uh, K. Uh, so I would estimate that's 4,000 meters per swim, six to eight times a week. And then cycling four to five times a week, but eight to 12 hours of cycling a week and then running, uh, four to five times a week. And that's it. And that's three to five hours of running. And then she does a little bit of weight work, two to three hours total, uh, maybe three hour, three sets of uh, weights during the week. So that's pretty cool. Oh, and by the way, yeah, after this news, we're going to get right into the long interview with, uh, with Diamond Bikes. Did I already say that? I already said that. All right, let's go. Okay, uh, there's a video of women's crit racing that I found and I trained to on the bike and it is intense, man. It's really cool. And there's a link to that. Uh, Magnus Backstead, who won Perry Roubaix at least once, and he is a machine. And he's either he might be my age, might be a little bit older, but anyway, he's a pro cyclist that's been retired from pro cycling for a little while. And he got into doing Ironmans last year, did as an age grouper, qualified for Kona, and now he's going pro, which I'm glad. I want. <laughs> I don't want ex-pro cyclists in the age group ranks. They're too good. And let's see, uh, Garmin introduced a whole bunch of new watches that you ought to check out. They're all over the place. Uh, you can go check them out. Um, it seems like the um, they all use the Garmin 920 XT as their base, and then they build on it with uh, different, a little bit different functionalities in uh, the different platforms. But... The 920 is the base platform, so it's pretty neat. Um, Helen Wyman, who is a female pro racer, uh, wrote a killer article on how unfair the UCI is against women. Women and somebody, women and somebody said uh, that the it gets so ridiculous that did you know that women aren't allowed to race as long as the men? I mean, that's, that's weird. And then also they weren't allowed to use the same, they weren't allowed to use uh, professional area parking at races, which is nuts. Uh, it really shows you how ridiculous the whole situation is. Uh, Joel Filio, who's been on the show recently, uh, he wrote a blog post summarizing like eight to 12 pages of forum answers to ask me anything. And I posted a link to that about how to train like a pro. Um, I built the bike course for Ultra Baby 2015, so we're doing an Ultraman uh, length race plus just a mile here in College Station on October 9th, 10th, and 11th, I think is the weekend of 2015, and so it's a three-day race, and I built 
the bike course for day one. It's subject to change, of course, as I go out and drive it and see if I can find something better and even hillier and more fun. Um, it's plenty hilly as it is. And with the winds here in Texas, it can be crazy hard and hot uh, or cold, who knows. And the, um, the map, I built it in Garmin Connect and the map is online. You can check it out and it builds an elevation profile with it. It's pretty neat. And Matt Fitzgerald uh, posted a article on triathlete.com or triathlete, triathlon, triathlete.com. The do's and don'ts of getting leaner. It's a pretty neat little write-up. I found a trail running video that takes about an hour, which is really cool. You can watch that while you're on the treadmill or on the bike. It's neat. So the guy behind him is, uh, there's a guy running and the guy behind him is on a bike. So you get to see a guy running in front of you through the woods. It's in a Nextera triathlon. And uh, because the camera's on the bike, the camera footage is really smooth instead of bouncing because of the run. And uh, there's a 100-mile triathlon introduced in Kansas. So it's a two-mile bike, 80-mile run, uh, 80-mile, <laughs> two-mile bike, two-mile swim, 80-mile bike, 18-mile run. And it's, uh, it ends up being 100 miles. And uh, the link to that, the website, is on zentriathlon.com. Check that out. And we got a lot of news here. Um, I found another good bike video that you can check it out. It's got watts and and all that good stuff. So filmed with a GoPro on the bike elevation profile. Um, How I found an article on training peaks of how to avoid the bonk on the run and especially the painful sloshing and just pain in your stomach on the run what causes it it's a really cool article and i've started putting it into effect and it's in the training log on the back half of the show and it works it's fantastic uh doping bans have increased from two years to four years i love that because two years seems like well i'll just take two years off and dope while i'm off (laughs) and get even more powerful and then uh and then i'll clean up just in time and uh, come back and then get uh tested and then be clean so four years really damages your professional career enough where that should help um qt systems qt2 systems buys outrival racing uh outrival is here in uh, the Woodlands, which is just on the road for me here in Texas, about an hour away. And that's where Ironman Texas is. And they're a pretty big deal. And QT2 is owned by Jesse Kropelnecki. So Jesse Kropelnecki is getting bigger. And always go check them out for their um, core diet, which is good stuff. Uh, there was a horrific video of a guy flipping over his bike, the front end of his bike, because he got a bar caught in his front wheel doing probably 30-something miles an hour. And... Let's see, Garmin had a uh, firmware update for the 510, 810, 1000. I struggled with that on my stupid watch, arguing with uh, things not working, but I finally got it to, to install, and now I'll get back, come back to life. Um, I found an interview. Boy, this is a lot of news. The, uh, I found an interview with a guy, and it's a podcast interview, who won a quintuple Ironman. That's a five-time Ironman. Turns out he's sponsored by Amrita Bars. So I might actually get him on the show. I'm trying to, and it looks like it's happening. And he also won Spartan Death Race. So that's a really cool link to go check out. How to use, I found an article on how to use your functional threshold power. Um, Amy Marsh, who's an Ironman champion, 
uh, and also friend, friend, spouse of Brandon Marsh, who's been on this show and just kills it in the swim on uh, a whole lot of Ironmans, is um, uh, been diagnosed with cancer. And that's really, really sad news, bad news. Everybody diagnosed relatively early, I guess. So um, prognosis is pretty good. You just never know with cancer. It's pretty crazy stuff. And also, um, because of that news, I happened to come across an article about how they found the cancer through blood test results. And then I found an article that uh, is how to decode your blood test results if you go get them done. And so you can go check out the link to that, read about that. And uh, everything you need to know, here's another article uh, (laughs) that was linked from this. Everything you need to know about uh, farting and how not to fart. Uh, if you're eating, if you're trying to eat a lot healthier, the bacteria in your guts is different than the food that you've been eating and it doesn't know what to do with it. So it gives off a lot of gas because it's inefficient and, um, it'll make you fart. And so there's a big article on how that works and how to, uh, get around that. So it's not so bad. And a world map of where pro cyclists come from and uh, challenge roth if you draft on challenge roth uh, during the marathon they're going to make you run an extra k uh kilo uh during the middle of the marathon which is gonna suck and i love it absolutely love it and i think that's enough news for now i also went and got a echocardiogram echocardiogram and an ekg and my heart is rocking like docking and everything's really, really cool with me. So I'm super stoked about that, which means I can do some more ultra stuff because my heart's fine. Okay, so that's the news. Let's go ahead and get started with our interview with the gang from Diamond Bikes. I am super excited to bring this to you. Super cool stuff. Let's dive in and enjoy. Welcome to the next level. Hey, Brad, are you there? Hello. Hello. Oh, wow. What's going on? I need to be shorter. Maybe I should go get my chair. <laughs> Let me go get the chair because it's like weird. I'll be right okay. back. Can you hear both of us? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Cool. So that was Brad on the... Yeah. Let's go ahead and start recording. This will be good. So I'm talking to the guys at Rooster Sports, and that was Brad that took off... Who's the guy with the uh, mustache? This, yeah, this is uh, David Morse, uh, the director of engineering at Booster Sports. Oh, cool. I'm glad we got you Thanks here, for too. Fun. Yeah. All right. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thanks for uh, getting in touch. And this is going to be a really cool interview because I am big into bikes. Great. Our pleasure. Yeah. And uh, where, where are you guys right now? Are you in uh, Illinois or Indiana or, or what? We are in Des Moines, Iowa. Oh, in Des Moines, Iowa. Okay. Uh, right in the I, middle. <laughs> right in the middle. <laughs> Idaho, Ohio, Illinois, Iowa. It's all kind of the same thing. Yeah. I've been to Des Moines. Yeah. And uh, cool. my dad worked on a construction project there for a few years. The uh, principal or prudential insurance company building. Whichever yeah, right one, downtown. Yep. Yeah, whichever one is for uh, that that does the commercials with Snoopy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's MetLife, isn't it? Oh, that is MetLife. Maybe not. Yeah. But anyway, so um, I would go visit them, and it was cool how everything was connected downtown with a Skyway. Yeah, we buildings. got some cold winters here. Yeah, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little Very chilly. convenient. 
And uh, one of the first questions we got from Twitter is, did you see, did you guys see that? No. Oh, hold on. Let me pull it up. It's funny. A pro triathlete, uh, Justin Metzler, Metzler with a Z, wanted to know if you guys could answer, why does Iowa, why does Iowa cultivate such good U.S. triathletes, DeBoom, Tolickson, Daniel Bretzer, uh, Matt Hansen, uh, Cameron Dye, and himself, of course. <laughs> That's a great question. I, I'm not from Iowa myself, but I would have to point towards uh, the farmer work ethic. People yeah. here know how to work hard, and uh, they don't take something like a cold winter as an excuse not to, not to bust their butts. Yeah. What about the lack of mountains? It's not Colorado. Well, you know, you can flog yourself uh, on any terrain. Really, you can you can make up your your uh, obstacles. Yeah, here in Texas, it's really windy, and so I just point it into the wind, and I can get a three-hour long hill. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> make something happen. <laughs> well, cool. Well, it's awesome to have you guys on. And tell me a little bit about the story behind Diamond Bikes. Uh, I think a lot of people might know that uh, TJ's behind it in one way or another. TJ Tolickson, a uh, pro triathlete that's famous for engineering his own stuff, uh, including uh, jockstrap cups as elbow pads. <laughs> he's willing to go to any extreme it takes to get it done. Yeah, he's a tinker. Yeah, and... Um, he, I was wondering maybe if you could answer if he's kind of like triathlons, uh, uh, Tony Stark, but without Absolutely. the, without the billions of dollars. And then, um, and what, what's behind the name diamond where I've, I haven't been able to figure out where that's come from. Yeah. So I'll start with, uh, the story behind the company. Yeah. Uh, TJ has a background in engineering and he's a pretty smart guy. So he's, looking for ways to make himself more competitive. And obviously, uh, hard work ethic is one of the most straightforward ways to become a better athlete. But there's a, a pretty big te technological side to triathlon. Mm -hmm. And I think that's uh, something to do with the term tri-geek. The, the, yeah. There are a lot of components and pieces of equipment that go towards the race. And improving your equipment actually makes you faster. So he wanted to uh, take advantage of his engineering expertise to see if he can make himself more competitive. Um, so he's a tinkerer, um, and he and I met when he wanted to make uh, an, an aero drink system. Uh, he was in Colorado. I was in Colorado, and he walked into a composites fabrication shop where I was working. Right. I was a triathlete at the time, mm -hmm. um, and he came to me with this idea. And so we got hashed. Uh, we hashed out basically our first prototype design. That's how we met. Um, and through that first project, we were talking about bike design and superbikes, and the idea of a superbike, this uh, V design or a beam bike, uh, was talked about. But at the time, neither of us really knew what we were doing. We didn't have the time or the resources to make something like that happen. It was just a what if t discussion. Right. Um, soon after that, I landed a job working at Zip as a design engineer. I spent five years there. Right. And TJ was, uh, we kept a relationship. He was the test writer for many of the projects I worked on. Um, so I would send him prototypes. He would give me feedback, and we'd develop products that way. Uh, so that, that kept us uh, in touch. And um, during that time, he decided he wanted to venture out without a bike sponsor and looked at, uh, the old zip bikes as potentially a faster bike to ride on. So right. uh, we 
hooked him up with an old zip bike. He raced on it for a few years, fell in love with it, thought that it had a future. The design was still good. It just needed to be re- resurrected. Uh, so we got together. Um, I flew up to Colorado. He met me there. We made a prototype of his diamond bike. And um, that that idea kind of morphed into diamond today. So um, 2013, I left Zip to help TJ start the company. Right. Um, and since then, we've been here and we built our factory and we've basically taken this old design that was less to get left to gather dust and breathe new life into it. So why, like I had a friend that I used to train with all the time that had a, um, a soft ride and it was a, it was a perfectly fine bike. So what happened to soft ride? Where, where'd they go? And why did zip quit making the, the V? That's a good question. I'm sure it's uh, multifaceted. There are probably uh, business reasons uh, that I have no uh, <laughs> no insight towards uh, that led to that. But also, there there was a, a shift in the market in the 90s when, um, in the late 90s, triathlon was really small compared to cycling. Right. And so the cyclists kind of drove the market for what was available. Um, and in 97, when the UCI banned beam bikes, basically the market for them disappeared. And so no one start, st- still made them. Oh, so for a while they were UCI legal? UCI, yeah, yeah. In, in the early 90s, uh, I, I refer to it as the golden age in bicycle design. <laughs> yeah. Those were, those were allowed. And so a lot of companies, oh. there were probably almost a dozen companies that had bean bikes. Yeah. And uh, at some point, the UCI saw what was happening, said, hey, this design is making a huge difference in results. And like the, the, the wetsuits in swimming. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one of the Olympics, just everyone was cleaning up. Whoever had a wetsuit was cleaning up, smashing old world records, um, or the, the swim skins. Right. Um, and so in 97, the UCI said, all right, we want this to be uh, about the legs, not about the bike. And so they banned beam bikes and made up a bunch of um, somewhat arbitrary rules about the restrictions of the bicycle design. Right. They want all that, bikes. when that market dropped up. I, I like the, the phrasing. They want all bikes to look exactly like Eddie Merckx's bike <laughs> in the 60s <laughs> right, they, or 70s yeah, or whatever he was winning. Yeah. They, they still recognize there's a need for uh, product innovation to keep the industry alive. People want to buy cooler stuff than just a steel round tube bike. Right. Um, but basically when the pros couldn't race on it in 97 the consumers didn't want it and people who raced in uci sanctioned events did couldn't race on it right so basically they dropped off the map in 97 triathlon still allowed them but there were one-tenth the number of triathletes to bu- to potentially buy those bikes than cyclists yeah so they just quit making them i guess yeah and fast forward to today it's the exact opposite numbers there's 10 times more triathletes at least in the u.s than there are cyclists Yet this design is still forgotten. So we thought we could take advantage of that, resurrect this design that is actually technically better, um, faster than the bikes that are being made to the standard double diamond bikes, but had kind of been forgotten and reintroduced them as a triathlete specific bike because there's a market for them. So then where does the name diamond come from? Is that a reference to the frame half of a diamond or, or what? Yeah, it's something that TJ came up with um, a couple of years ago. Uh, and he talks about the the misspelling of it. Yeah, it's missing the A. 
yeah. which is basically a reference to to cutting out the the rear a frame oh, okay. of, of the bike cool um, a lot of people probably don't know that yeah that's neat yeah it's a, it it's not super well advertised i guess yeah that's pretty cool so never i've never ridden one and um having never ridden one of course i'm afraid of having always ridden a double diamond bike that the somehow there's just no way it's like it's like magic that this thing is going to not crack at the head tube or something like that or down at the bottom bracket but that never happens and like how much engineering has to go into the bottom bracket and the head tube uh to keep it to not need the uh, structural reinforcement of the seat tube and the and the seat stays and how close is it to 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 actually breaking is it something that it would just it would take a <laughs> phenomenal act of nature to actually break one of these and people are just just don't know that yeah uh carbon fiber is a magical material it's uh pound for pound it's about 12 times stronger than steel yeah um and it's tricky to work with but it also allows great flexibility and freedom to work with mm-hmm. so uh when we're making a beam bike Definitely, there are safety factors we have to take into consideration. A beam bike is not uh, – if you're talking about structures, as a civil engineer would talk about structures, a beam bike is not an ideal structure because that beam carries a very high moment. There's a torque that the weight of your body imparts towards the head tube of, of the beam. It's not fully resolved. But you don't have those seat stays to support the right. weight of the person. So it's not ideal. You do end up having to reinforce the bike in certain areas uh, so it doesn't break. Um, It's kind of weight-wise, it's a trade-off because you're removing parts of the bike, but you have to add that material back in other places to keep the strength. Okay. So we go through uh, a lot of iterative testing where we take our our best guess, we test the bike, we break it to see how, how, what it takes to fail. We ride it to make sure that nothing's going to happen. And we go through an iterative process to make sure that the bike is fit to sell to someone. Um, and the, so when you're riding a bike, you have your static load, which yeah. is the weight that gravity is pulling down on the rider yeah. just all the time. And then there's a dynamic load when you hit a bump or, uh, oh, yeah. you go over an obstacle, there's a, a certain shock that that, bump imparts uh-huh. and uh the inertia of the your body weight increases that load momentarily so you have to be able to overcome not only the static load of gravity if you weigh 100 pounds or 150 pounds that that load has to be supported but also if you hit a pothole the the force that the beam could see is upwards of a thousand pounds if you hit enough pothole a big enough pothole going fast enough so right that that beam has to be ready for those scenarios and we we pad in a, a pretty good margin of uh, a pretty big safety factor to make sure that nothing happens so well i used to work uh pouring concrete and we would test concrete for uh strength we would have to put it in a hydraulic press and then it would crush these cylinders of concrete down until the press needle uh wiggled it would climb and climb <laughs> and, and climb and then if it didn't wiggle that if it wiggled that meant it created a fracture Right. And, then, and then you would stop the press, stop the presses, and then uh, take down a note or whatever the uh, needle was at. There's probably this is back in the early '90s, so there's probably more digital ways of doing this now. But the uh, but then if the needle kept going, 
then people started to run. Because <laughs> when that thing goes off, it's going to send pieces of, of uh, material, like concrete, like shards, like through it broke a window one time. So uh, how do you guys actually test the strength on it? What do you, what do, you do? And how hard does it break? How bad does it break your heart when you actually crack one? <laughs> well, destroying destroying frames is part of the testing process. Yeah. Uh, you just have to set the expectation that a couple of them are going to be sacrificed towards the the greater good. Oh, um, but so testing over here is very similar. We have a, a hydraulic ram that loads the frame. We we set it up in in a fixture. Um, and load that beam uh, so we can measure the force it takes before we get what's called first ply failure. So you refer to a wiggling yeah. of the, the hydraulic gauge as an indicator of when you get the first fractures in, in, the, in the concrete, which is, by the way, a composite just similar, similar to carbon fiber. Right. With, with carbon fiber, there are a lot of sophisticated ways to measure when that failure is occurring. You can keep track of the displacement of the ram, um, but a really good indicator that's pretty sensitive actually is to listen for a crack, and that indicates first ply failure. Okay. So when you hear that crack, you're approaching the limit of the strength, the ultimate strength of that part. Uh, it probably still has a ways to go, but you know you've done some irreversible damage to the part. So we listen for that first ply failure, and then we know that we're probably within a certain percentage of the final strength of the part. Wow, so you got to get your ear right up close to that. You got to. You wear safety goggles. Yeah, well, you goggles. have to quiet thing. Yeah, <laughs> you have to. You have to listen carefully. Wow, that's pretty cool. Uh, yes, safety goggles for sure. Okay, so the the aerodynamic savings comes. I've heard mostly from the lack of um, seat stays. So those are the semi vertical. Uh, they on it depends on the bike, but they come up about forty five degree angle from the um, from the rear wheel axle up towards the seat post. And so with your design, you've taken those out of the wind. Um, there's uh, no seat post beneath the beam. Does that really, does the lack of that part actually uh, save watts at all? or is Absolutely. That... So in a, in a head-on, just in a headwind, straight headwind, uh-huh. they're not going to, the, the seat tube isn't going to contribute a whole lot just because it has a lot of dirty air. It's fared, um, although the, down tube and the head tube are far away. Mm-hmm. It doesn't contribute a whole lot, but it's in crosswinds that it, it makes the biggest impact. So having that seat tube removed in a crosswind makes the bike much faster. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. So over the course of an Ironman, for example, let's say a five to six hour bike ride, um, how much time do you think your frame saves versus like, say, um, the bike I ride is like a BMC TMO2, which is just kind of a standard, um, almost super bike. Did you we lose you? No, we're. Oh, okay. Can you see Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we're here. Um, so you're asking about the, the time savings over an Ironman course for something like a BMC? Yeah, yeah. So there's a, a pretty straightforward way to estimate that a pretty um a pretty good way to estimate it mm-hmm. through wind tunnel data right. and the the basic the basic uh way to do that is you can uh measure drag in grams between two different setups mm-hmm. and from that difference in drag you plug it into a very well formulated 
uh, commonly used force balance equation, a physics equation, right. to derive a change in speed. So you you from the the change in drag, you can calculate what that would equate to in a change in speed okay. out on the on the course, and then you so that would be your average speed. It's not going to be your instantaneous. Um, right. And you get an estimate of time. Right. So, uh, or rather, you multiply it by the, the the distance, and you get time. So, based on wind tunnel data, we've done that with our bike, uh, pitting it against the Cervelo P53 and okay. the Specialized Shiv. Okay. And yeah. uh, we did this at a different, a few ranges of of yaw angles. And for the P5, um, anywhere between a minute twenty one seconds to up to four and a half minutes over wow. the P5-3 on an Ironman course. And then the shiv, anywhere between uh, high three minutes all the way up to four minutes and 45 seconds, all, all depending on the yaw angle changes. So that gives you a range of savings. Uh, it's hard to pin down an exact number just because it depends on the conditions on the course. But the difference is in minutes. It's not in 10, 20 seconds. Yeah, that's, that's substantial. That's pretty good. So... Um, your bike has been out for a little while and you're getting really good uh, reception from customers, uh, which I have to say, following it on slow switch, <clears throat> it seems like some of your best reception is from your customer service, which is, again, your uh, Iowa um, upbringing, probably. But. <laughs> Iowa hospitality, yeah. <laughs> Iowa hospitality. Uh, I, when my dad lived there, he was like, people in Iowa are just so nice. It's so great. And... Uh, <laughs> Um, one time he was flying back down to Texas uh, on a trip, and his car got stuck in a snowbank, and he just left it there. <laughs> and he said, when he got back, there it was. You know, no one was going to mess with it, so because everybody's so nice, he liked That's that. Funny. Um, but yeah. anyway, uh, the bike. Uh, what, what are you planning on? Any changes? Like, are you going to do like? Or is it too soon, like to say, like yearly kind of updates? Are are you already looking at, at stuff to implement in it uh, to change for next year? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, we can never be complacent. I think it would be irresponsible as a, of us never to be thinking about the next move. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I I can't dive you know, see into the the details of it, mm-hmm. but the bike that we introduced uh, last two two Novembers ago actually has a lot of uh, future-proof features on it that we just haven't yet employed or or deployed yet. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot of things that we can do with the bike based on the current design that were strategically designed into the bike that we will be taking advantage of later. Um, we can't, I can't talk about it right now, but we've got a lot of stuff in the works, and it's really exciting to be in that stage where we have a lot of a lot of different cards to still play. That's cool. Yeah. So. Um- People can follow uh, your, you on, I think y'all are on Instagram. I, I know you're all on Twitter and you have a blog and everything. And there's some pretty cool pictures of you guys making the bikes. And one of them is uh, pulling sheets of carbon out of storage, out of frozen storage. So why is, why is carbon kept frozen in sheets while in storage? That's a great question. There are Or is it just that several- cold there right now? <laughs> yeah. it's actually a, a it's warmer than it is outside. Heater. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are several different ways you can use carbon fiber to make an end product uh-huh. and what we've chosen to do is use carbon fiber that's been what's called pre-impregnated with 
uh, heat-sensitive resin. Um, And that heat-sensitive resin, the reason why that's advantageous is, well, for one thing, it's a lot less messy than just putting down dry carbon fiber and and squeegeeing wet epoxy everywhere. But it also comes to us in a much better um, package. The the percentage of resin to carbon fiber is already dosed out before it gets to us. So we have much better control over the end weight and, and strength of the product because it already has that really homogenous impregnation of that resin throughout the entire sheet of carbon fiber. Wow. And that that resin has an outlife. So at room temperature it's tacky. It kind of feels like a fruit roll up. Yeah. Um but if we left it at room temperature for a month, it would eventually go bad. It wouldn't have its full strength properties. It it wouldn't we wouldn't be able to process it into a good bike. So by keeping it in the freezer, you prolong that outlife by years. Really the, the manufacturer says it stays up for it up to a year, but you could realistically keep it in there for a couple of years and it would still be good. So we keep it frozen to preserve the properties of that resin. That's really an, it's a unfinished chemical reaction and we want to keep it suspended that way. So if I wanted to make like a little storage box or something like that out of carbon fiber, I could get that carbon fiber and then just heat it with a hairdryer and then, uh, I'd be better off than making the huge mess when I see people making carbon fiber <laughs> in their garage all on their own. Yeah. The, the, so pre-impregnated carbon fiber is uh, abbreviated as pre-preg. Uh-huh. Um, so pre-preg definitely cuts down on the mess. Um, and it, it's quite a bit more expensive just because there's a lot of processing yeah. up front that the manufacturer has to do. But in many cases, if you're, if you're looking for the quality and the strength, then it's, it's worth the extra cost. Cool. I just okay. I just laughed because uh, recently we had a customer who um, wanted to get a bike for Christmas, and it, it wasn't going to be able to ship in time because they wanted to customize it, and she didn't know what her husband wanted. Yeah. Um. So we made a, a custom, uh, like custom, our first box out of carbon fiber, <laughs> and uh, we let's just say we make bikes a lot better than we make <laughs> like custom boxes. So. Yeah. <laughs> It's pretty funny. You have to practice a lot, I think, to be any it, good it, it at it. It was a little bit more difficult than just putting it like this and putting it under a hairdryer, which, <laughs> you know, me from a marketing and sales perspective, I was like, sure, we can make a box. Oh, yeah, sure. And we can. Uh, it looked more like a lump of coal than anything else, which is great because <laughs> yeah. diamonds come from coal. So luckily we had an out. <laughs> <laughs> There's a diamond inside this big lump that's of coal. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So um, what are the steps in actually making the bike? it's uh from a a high level it's it's pretty straightforward so we start with the sheets of pre-impregnated fabric uh Uh, we use mostly unidirectional fiber as opposed to woven fiber Mm -hmm. so that means all the carbon fibers when it comes off the roll they're running the same direction we cut that into smaller sheets and layer them together in specific orientations right um and then, so we have a stack of multiple layers that we cut out into smaller templates that roughly resemble certain parts of the bike. Uh-huh. Those then get placed uh, into molds um, that are the exact negative copy of what the finished bike part looks like. Right. And when we place it in the molds, it's kind of like a piece of origami. There are there's a very specific set, uh, there's a very specific order in which these parts go in and how they get folded and, and interact with each other. Um, and then there's a little bit of um, hand-waving and magic where we have to apply pressure and heat to the carbon fiber to make it cure properly. So you need uh, pressure, temperature, and time 
to make a good carbon part. So the pressure basically compresses all the plies together, makes sure that all the fibers are running in the, the correct direction. You don't want any kinked fibers or fibers that are stray, not supporting the load that they're intended to support. Right. You need the the correct temperature to cure that resin and fully cure it so it's at maximum strength. And then you need uh, the timing of both of those two things is very important to get the resin to flow evenly through all the fibers uh, and disperse evenly across the fibers to get that full strength of the resin. Okay. So once all the parts are in the mold, heated and cured, uh, we pop that part out. We don't make our bike in one in one piece. There, are, we make it in several large pieces, mm-hmm. um, and then those get prepared uh, for bonding. So we bond those pieces together, and uh, then the entire bike gets uh, some bodywork and surface prep before it goes to paint. Mm-hmm. And that surface prep is actually a very critical step in keeping uh, the paint job strong and adhering adhering to the frame. So that's a very labor-intensive part of sanding down and making the surface of the the pre-painted bike absolutely impeccable before it goes to paint. It gets painted with our sweet logo in some cool colors. And then uh, when it comes back, we do a a full uh, quality inspection to make sure that all the critical uh, dimensions and all the, the interfaces with other components are as they should be. Then it goes on the wall to wait for a lucky customer. So if, um, if somebody wanted it without the paint, do you, do you do that? Uh, on very rare occasions we'll, we'll do that. We prefer to sell a painted bike. Yeah. Um, we definitely will do custom. We have a couple of really talented, uh, painters who basically, uh, the, the sky's the limit. One of the guys that we work with is touted as the most talented airbrusher in all of Iowa. Uh, <laughs> so I, it's we've heard it from a couple of different people. So when he, he first he first claimed that, and we you know we thought he was just full of smoke, yeah. but uh, he's re- he's very really talented. And so whenever someone wants a custom design, uh, he's our first guy to go to. Oh, cool! Maybe I can send him brutal- send him my helmet. My arrow helmet and have him paint it like Darth Vader's yeah. mask or something. Absolutely, like yeah. Some yeah. of the stuff he's done has been absolutely amazing, and we're going to have some really cool bikes coming out over the next month or so. So, uh, I'll be sure to make sure I'm sharing all of those bikes with everyone. Yeah, and so why would you not want people to get a um, a bear bike? Why uh, why you, why do you prefer them to get it painted? A couple of different things. I I think that um, our brand reputation. Mm-hmm. kind of rides on the paint job it, it's what speaks most loudly on the bike it's yeah. a weird looking bike so it's recognizable but um we want to make sure that the, those bikes that we send out on the road look as as good as they possibly can yeah. um so if it's going to leave our door it's, it's going to leave our our door looking like like as something that we would approve of if someone wants to then sand it down and paint it with smiley faces and <laughs> bats on it whatever they want to do is fine but um we want to make sure that there's a certain level um there's a certain expectation of how the bike should look when it leaves the factory okay cool so you said it weighs about the same as a double diamond bike because the pieces you are removing um you you end up using that material anyways to kind of reinforce the beam right yeah so a fully built bike 
uh, will come in anywhere between 16 to 18 pounds, depending on the components. Yeah. Uh, but that's that's right in line with the the top super bikes that people are riding today. They're you know anywhere between 15 and 19 pounds. Okay. And then what about the um, the seat post? The seat post doesn't go through the beam. It looks like it ends in the beam. So do people have yep. to saw off the the bottom of the seat post if they want to keep lowering it or or what? Yeah, so we send each bike with uh, a standard length seat post, uh, which is about six or seven inches long. And then you saw it down to approximately the, the height that you need for your fit. Uh, there's still about an inch and a half of adjustment once you cut the seat post. So you, you still have plenty of play. Uh, and then if you decide you made a mistake, you cut it too short, or someone else is riding the bike, they need a longer seat post, those are available through us for a very reasonable cost. So just to replace the bike uh, or to sell to someone else, if you were going to do that, then you just get a new seat post. Okay, that's cool. That's good that y'all do that. So what's a day in the life of making these bikes look like? I mean, you show up at noon and start celebrating (laughs) your own business and drinking pale ales and throwing bikes in the uh, oven or, or what happens every every day starts at seven thirty. we have the whole crew here yeah. early um and we, ha- we each have our own post it's a really small company uh uh-huh. you know a year ago we had four guys total now we've grown considerably since then but everyone has their place and and they have their marching order so we have some people in the clean room who are cutting carbon and laying up carbon in molds. We have some guys who are doing the molding and machining. Um, it's a lot of manual labor and there are a lot of people here who aspire to grow the company to the size where they might not have to actually be the doers right now. We're just a company full of doers cause we're so small. Mm-hmm. So Brad and I might be back there physically making bike bikes and getting dirty and getting carbon dust all over us. Um, so right now we're, we're at the point where we're really hustling um, everyone in the company is hustling really hard to grow this thing. Um, but we all have our, our place and we're all dedicated to, to making this happen every day. So how excited were you guys watching, uh, Kona on, on <laughs> at the shop that when, uh, when we were there, you were, yes. y'all were there. Uh, several of us. Yeah. So uh, Kona was obviously a pretty big marketing opportunity for us yeah. and, uh, we're a, we're a pretty small company. Everyone wears a lot of hats. So we all had actually a job to do in Kona mm-hmm. representing the company. So many of us in the company were there and we certainly got to, we, we watched the beginning of the race live, but then when it got on the bike, we found a TV and we were just, we, we couldn't contain ourselves when we saw Mike Twelsick on our bike leading the entire race. Like it, it couldn't have gotten any better than that. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, talking to Hillary um the other day at uh, uh the Austin half iron man and mm-hmm. i said there was a guy on a really cool bike that was wearing your uh smash fest kit on there <laughs> <laughs> i had no idea she goes that's my husband <laughs> right <laughs> and i was like oh well cool so you know who he is <laughs> that's funny i mean that him taking off on the bike for you guys was so cool um, I mean, for everybody, like what he was doing that day was just a huge breakthrough for, for two companies for sure. Yeah, the whole was, week was, was great for us. I mean, the year before we had one bike in the race this year, we had 21 bikes in the race. Oh, really? Um, wow. 
That's let that lot. put a 16th in the bike count. Yeah. So, so people are qualifying for Kona on this thing. Like, this yeah. is the way I, yeah. I, I see it. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're not just it's in Kona, but bike. it's getting them to Kona for sure. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, there's some other things, some other really cool things uh, that happened this year. We had all our diamond owners who, who actually showed up uh, to the race. We had 21 bikes for a pre-ride, and we had them over for Brown. So we got to see everyone who actually bought our bikes in person who qualified in one place. And that was really cool to do before the ride. Uh-huh. Um, and just the overwhelming support of, of people who were actually anxious to see our bike and, and heard about it or seen it a little bit. Finally got to see it and ride it and test ride it. And it was just like an amazing culmination of all these things happening and, and sort of that stamp of validity we we're looking for as a company. So it was... Um, it was an amazing, amazing week for us. And it, it really started with uh, TJ's win uh, in Mont-Tremblant mm-hmm. for the North American Ironman Championship. Right. And Kona was just tipping that way. And it's, it's been amazing ever since. So uh, they're made in, 100% made in America. Yes. And, yeah, I paused there just to make sure. <laughs> See, I gotta, Assembled yeah. and made, like that's a, that's a new term these days. Like made in America, what does that even mean, right? Yeah, well, so yeah, you're definitely putting making them, making them in America, yeah, I mean, and proud of it. And I am too. That is awesome. So, how long is it going to stay that way? Is that the way it's always going to be for what you consider the foreseeable future? Yeah, I think so. I, uh, there was a very deliberate reason why we're doing it this way. Mm-hmm. And we're hedging our bets that that this is going to be an advantage for us long term. By keeping all the operations of our company under one roof, we have a lot of advantages over people who do it uh, who run their bike business the more conventional way. Mm-hmm. We have marketing is automatically in tune with what uh, design research and design is doing, just because they're sharing the same office. They can walk out in the factory and look at what's going on. So. They're already bought in with everything that we're doing. They understand what the state of the art is. They can explain it and sell it a lot better. When we have production issues, it's it's not this back and forth from a factory overseas. It's the engineer who designed the bike walks back and figures out what's going on in production, what, what that design is right. doing. And you have all hands on deck that will basically make the process better solve the problem and then store that information for the next time they're designing a product. They don't have to make the same mistake again. They, they know viscerally what went wrong and how to, how to avoid that. And you have a much faster uh, product design cycle. So you can develop products a lot faster if everything is two steps away. You, go, you cross a threshold and you're in the factory where your prototype parts are being made and then you can physically walk them to the test lab to get them tested. Right. Talk to the test engineer directly. So there's a, just a lot of these small changes that some people might think are inconsequential all add up to make us very fast movers and very self-aware of what we need to improve on and how to improve on it. Yeah, I like that a lot. I, and, and I've seen that in many industries now that are bringing back what they used to offshore back to onshore um, to distinguish themselves from the competition. Because now, now that everything can be made everywhere, <laughs> that the um, 
the customer service and the quality is now a distinguishing feature. Not everybody wants to get the cheapest stuff. Some people will pay enough people now will pay to have the better quality to have it made in one shop. Yeah. I think that speaks to the customer base. Um, that making stuff overseas is enticing in some respects. Um, Labor and you know, the costs are, are cut by going overseas, but there's a, a non-monetary price that you pay. There's a cost of doing business, and that's just in the the loss of communication. You have people working in different time zones, so you lose time in communication back and forth there. Yeah. Uh, you lose a lot of the context when you're speaking in two dis- distinct languages. Right. You know, th- there are a lot of subtleties that in communicating with someone what you're trying to get them to do or accomplish. And when you have to translate it to a different language or talk to someone who's maybe speaking English as their second or third language, there are very simple mistakes that can be made just, just because th- there are different cultures that you're dealing with. Right. So you avoid all that by keeping it under the same roof. Everyone speaks the same language in, in a literal sense and a metaphorical sense. So two things I've noticed about the bike that are really interesting to me is – one, I'm always adjusting my stem uh, height as as the season goes on. I can get lower, you know, as I gain weight or lose weight. I can adjust my stem up and down really easily. And um, and and what you guys have on on your bike looks like a classic stem uh, setup assembly. That a lot of super bikes have these massively integrated stems that with all these stacks and all this other stuff. And um, are you? Uh, there's pluses and minuses to both because one's more aero than the other. But are you looking at uh, changing your stem to be more uh, your stem assembly to be more aero like the other super bikes, or you're going to leave that alone so that people can adjust their bikes uh, easier and assemble them like after uh, traveling or or what? Yeah, there's always that give and take between performance and convenience. Uh, and in terms of bikes, I, the super bikes uh, usually lack in convenience for the sake of, of performance, the speed. Mm-hmm. And I've even heard of people having their their home bike and their travel bike. Yeah, totally. The, the home bike being the, their tricked out super bike and the travel bike being a more conventional one. Um, so we're always we're always playing with that, considering where to strike the, the balance. Um, I will say that the beam design kind of allows us um, a larger margin of error mm-hmm. in that the frame itself is faster than a conventional A-frame. So we can compete with these super bikes without going to the, the same length that they go to to drop every single gram of drag. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, th- this kind of a, of a choice we made of what to tackle first. So with our, our smaller staff, we have to pick and choose our battles, what we want to work on, what's going to make the biggest impact on our product. Right. Um, as I said, we're always developing and we're always uh, refining and looking for ways to make the bike faster. Um, so um, when, when the time comes, we know that people will always be nipping at our heels. When the time comes, we will be introducing um, every single advantage we, we can think of. Yeah. But for right now, we're we're very happy that we have that convenience factor along with the superbike performance. Yeah. So um, on the bottle cage mounts, the I saw something. I guess on slow twitch, maybe somebody was saying that that the diamond doesn't have any uh, bottle cage mounts on the down tube. 
But then I saw somewhere else where maybe it was you guys in customer support said that um, you could drill them upon request. It was was uh, was that true, or did I misread something, or how's that work? No, that's that's correct. So um, as a standard build, we don't put bottle bosses on the down tube, and that's because we feel pretty strongly that you can make a better setup with all your nutri- nutritional needs by keeping stuff off of the down tube. Right. Um, so we encourage people to get used to riding with bikes or with bottles between their arms behind the saddle. Um, and then race day, it's where your, your nutrition is where it always is, right? Right in the most aerodynamic place. If you feel like you really are used to the bottle between your legs on the down tube, we can, of course, put in bottle bosses. But just as a default, we leave those off. Okay. And um, what is the hardest part? about making the bike what part are you guys like oh my god if you could change something what would what would be it uh, i guess uh, on the on the production side um the 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 body work is very painstaking and so uh, from from experience i know that that's pretty well universal in making a, a painted carbon product yeah. there's a lot of sanding and body work that goes into it um from a we set we had that down too initially yeah it's, <laughs> it's it's something that we're always refining and trying to trying to make it faster and easier yeah um, every every day from a sales and marketing side um it's been interesting trying to sell a product that looks futuristic and very different but has this legacy mm-hmm. uh, that people always associate it with stuff that they've had 15 years ago yeah. so people always look at the bike and and they immediately impose all these characteristics that they've gleaned from riding or hearing about people riding soft rides or the zip bike. And it's really hard to overcome that sort of prejudice because, the, I mean, this bike, the, our bike, the Diamond, is made in a completely different manner than those bikes were. And it has completely different features and functions. And it feels 100% different than those bikes do. So our hardest job in marketing, Brad can can tell you this all day long, is trying to convince people that it's going to be it's going to be something apart from those legacy beam bikes yeah so how does it ride uh the main question at the very end of the interview that we the very first thing we should ask is what is it uh what does it ride like i mean i've researched it a lot and what what i've heard is that you can barely tell any difference between it and an a-frame and the um the old uh, like say soft rides, you could actually, they flexed a lot compared to what mm. you're making. It's pretty interesting because I mean, we've had, we have, we've had TJ ride this for, you know, over a year. Right. And TJ, uh-huh. even though it's his own company, you would think a professional triathlete would want to ride something that's actually pretty good, not just to sell his soul for some crap product that's out there. Right. Yeah. Um, but but until you actually get on the bike, no one believes it. Absolutely, for some reason, no one believes that it's actually a pretty stiff ride and it rides just like a normal bike. Uh-huh. But when they come back from a test ride, and we got this in Arizona, this guy from London uh, came over and he he says he has a blog and you know was is like I'm I'm going to tell you this if I don't if I don't like the bike I'm just going to give you a couple pointers and you know I'll kind of let you get down easy and I won't necessarily write anything bad about it. Oh yeah. And we're like, all right, you know, go for a ride. He came back, and I swear to God, it looked like he was a seven-year-old who just rode his bike for the first time. He had yeah. the biggest smile on his face. 
his wife was with them. She was smiling. They just couldn't stop talking about it because they just didn't believe that it was actually going to behave like a regular bike. And um, I, I think this is like the best example of how it can feel is have, have you ever gone between aluminum clinchers and carbon tubulars? Um, like back to back, like training wheels or race wheels or something like that. No, but I've gone from aluminum clinchers to zip 808, uh, clinchers, but with, um, latex tubes and, uh, Grand Prix 4000, uh, yeah, the latex tubes, you can totally in the better, the better, uh, tires you can already feel like that. It, it, feels it just like feels like sensual, a little bit of a like softer riding. ride. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's like a Cadillac, you know, it just goes over these little bumps yeah. and you don't even realize that you're in a bump. So like the whole point of, of the bike is that it's aerodynamic, right? But there's this side benefit because there is, you know, a tiny bit of deflection. You can stay aero longer because all the shocks aren't going up into your back. So you can stay in your aero position for a little bit longer and you don't notice these shocks that are coming up from the road. Yeah. And, and, and if you're, you're seated on a climb, because that's really like the, the, the proof, right? If you could stay seated on a climb and not have that beam bounce and lose power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then, and that's really the biggest test uh, to our bike. And, and you can stay seated and climb, and, and the beam will not flex, and you will not notice any loss of power due to that. But again, it's just like you know, you can, we can say it over and over again, and we can get this person on the bike and that person on the bike, but just the the, the the, the reaction of people who, who have this preconceived notion, no matter what, once they come back, completely changed, smiles on their faces, and it's like a whole new experience for people. And, and that's like one of the best feelings and one of the most energizing feelings like from someone uh, who's working in the company can come back and take and like you would not believe all these people in Arizona and what they said about their bikes and everyone's back here, you know, working their ass off and, you know, sanding down carbon fiber and, you know, making all these bikes and assembling them and and, and I get the chance to get out there and actually talk to the people and see their reaction and try to breathe that energy back to the company and say, you guys don't understand how awesome this bike is. <laughs> Because uh, we forget about that day to day, you know, we, yeah. we forget like the feeling of what a bike can actually do for you, and uh, it's it's amazing and inspiring and and, and motivating to, to see these reactions. But we we need to get more people on bikes, and we got to get get rid of that stigma because, like I said, no matter what we say or do, people just don't believe yet. Yeah, you're right. It's both futuristic, but what I've noticed on slow twitch is the people that are commenting on them and buying them are actually the older guys that, um, that relish the old days, you know, and they want to get one <laughs> because that's what they used to have. Or they had a friend that had one. Yeah. Like 15 years ago. And then, um, and then, yeah, they just go on and on about how cool it is that, that it's actually fantastic. So. Yep. Yeah. It's fun. It's amazing, yeah. Well, Dave, I got a question for you coming from Zip. Yeah. So um, I have it, it's carbon related. It's not <laughs> it's not diamond related, but it's carbon related. So I I've been training and racing Ironmans for ten years. Well, not Ironmans for ten years, but let's say Ironmans for uh, eight years on Zip a six oh six wheel set, which is you know is a four oh four front eight oh eight rear. Yeah. Um, put together by a master wheel 
wheel builder. So the spokes, every, I mean, everything's just fantastic. They look fantastic. When are these going to explode out from under me into a million pieces, <laughs> like a NASCAR uh, crash? Or are they just going to keep going until something? Do I need to have my head next to them and listen for a crack or something? <laughs> no. Uh, so those wheels go through the ringer. The design gets tested and tested um, specifically for those like long years and years of use. I'd say that the the first things to go on those wheels are going to be either the bearings or the braking surface. And is this a tubular or a aluminum clincher? The, aluminum the clincher. Carbon aluminum hybrid. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, check. Yeah, I would first check the braking surface, um, and I think back then they were still putting in little dimples to as a as a brake wear indicator. So yeah. you should have about four little dimples on the sidewall of the braking surface, um, and if those are still present, if you haven't worn through that deep into the aluminum, you're set. Cool. Uh, as time goes on, that will become thinner and thinner. Um, and when that gets past those indicators, it probably is an indication that you might want to think about trading in or, or getting rid of those wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the bearings, um, it's easy to check if the bearings are still lubed up and smooth. Um, those are the first two wear items. Uh, and then uh, check the spoke bed for any visual signs of, of wear and tear or, or cracks. And if you haven't hit any big obstacles or potholes, you're probably good. I mean, carbon fiber is a really strong material. It doesn't necessarily fatigue over time. Yeah. So if you're not if you're not encountering any big blows or knocks, it's probably still good. Yeah, I see the question on um, online where, like, on Slow Twitch or whatever, where uh, people will be buying car- structural carbon wheels. You know, where it's laced into the the spokes are laced into the carbon. There's a difference. A lot mm-hmm. of people don't know that, but. Um, and and they're considering like zips or 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 head or something like that and but they only want to ride them for uh racing and i'm like man dude <laughs> ride the hell out of these things because they're they're incredible they they've never needed any truing or anything like that the carbon's so straight and so strong it's incredible yeah that's uh one of the the main advantages of something like a carbon clincher that zip came out with in the past 4 years uh they're so durable. They're more durable than an aluminum wheel set yeah. that you can train on them and race on them. And I'm a huge proponent of racing on what I train on. So uh, it, it just basically lets you know exactly what you're capable of. There's no second guessing. You don't overextend yourself because you feel like Superman with these new race wheels. And you also you you battle test your equipment before race day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know how it's going to behave in crosswinds too. So. I'm yeah, I'm so used, used to, to my front my front wheel and a and I've got a wheel cover on the rear that I'm so used to it I ride it all the time it doesn't bother me at all so no matter what so well cool I really appreciate you guys being on the show um, is there anything else you want to get out there or any anything I didn't ask I think we covered pretty much that everything was, yeah that was a very yeah. uh, comprehensive wasn't too bad interview. at all <laughs> <laughs> it didn't hurt one bit well cool well how do um how do people get in touch with you? Where do they find you? Like I found on your blog and on your website, some pictures of you guys working on the bikes, but where can people, I think that tells a big part of the story, you know? So like, where can people see more of that or follow you on Twitter or, or what, or what's next? Yeah, we have, uh, <laughs> well, we have some things coming out. So this, uh, 
along with the the custom painted bikes that I'm super excited about because I'm the one that gets to take those pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do ha- we do have some information coming out and that that will be um, coming soon. Uh, so we're work- one of the things that we're working on is we're working on a women's team with Hillary oh, and uh, yeah. smash. It's going to be a smash diamond. So primarily the people who are buying our bikes right now are men. Uh, mm-hmm. So this is hopefully going to give us some. Um, some more women on there, some more interest from women and say, yes, we, you know, we want, we want, um, badass female athletes riding our bike as well as male athletes. So, yeah. uh, we're going to, that's coming out. We're working on the final, uh, teammates for that. So that's going to be launching here in January. We have some other news that's going to be in January, um, as well as, as the new bikes, but, um, you can follow along most of it. Most of the information that the updates and whatnot can be found at our Facebook page, which is just backslash diamond bikes, uh-huh. uh, for the really cool, uh, pictures. If you want just to look at pictures, we're backslash diamond bikes on Instagram and Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, as well for some articles, um, www.diamondbikes.com uh, and roostersports.com will both get us to the, the hen house side of our business, which we didn't talk a lot about today. Yeah. Uh, the travel case, we just talked about the bikes. Um, and then uh, we'll be starting to do some blogging here uh, in January. So um, Google Diamond Bikes, and there's a number of different ways that you should be able to, to follow along and stay in touch with us. And uh, for people that don't know, Rooster is R-U-S-T-E-R, right? Correct. Yep, that's yep. right. And yep. the uh, I saw a picture of a um, – it was different shades of uh, kind of – powder blue and baby blue i think it was uh, a diamond bike frame painted up and it was gorgeous man it was really really pretty so that's one of my favorite yeah that was on one of one of our sponsored athletes uh, had the idea for that frame and uh, we got it to him just in time for kona and yeah. it drew a lot of attention got a lot of heads to turn yeah. and even some magazine editors uh, snuck away with it for a little bit and, and snapped some of the photos you probably saw oh yeah and you guys had a write-up in triathlete magazine or triathlon.com mm-hmm. or yeah yeah a lot of good press coming a lot mm-hmm. of good press from that yeah that was really really cool so cool well great. thanks a yeah. lot guys thank you thanks, thanks for having us all right pretty cool stuff i tell you what after that interview i started looking at diamond bikes very seriously myself i was like man how long is how long is my bike frame gonna last you know mine's all carbon i got a bmc tmo2 which is a really nice bike but you never know man you know, you're always trying to shave off time and, and why have stuff slower than what you need. And eventually you do need a new bike. And so I started checking them out and I feel totally convinced knowing what I learned or what I already knew. And then plus what I learned in that interview about carbon and that, uh, the testing and, and also the care that they put into building bikes that I would be very happy on a diamond and they, Really, really knocked that interview out of the park. That was so cool. And maybe the um, we can get TJ Tollickson on the podcast soon as well. And it was so crazy that as I'm wrapping up editing this podcast, that the news breaks that Jesse and Jordan are now getting sponsored by them. So it really looks like that Diamond is making a big splash in the sport. And um, that's really cool. I love seeing stories of people that are in an industry working in in the trenches actually coming together and putting together uh, a product or a service or a business that works based on what they've seen needs to be done. That's really, really cool. All right, so let's mention a show sponsor. We got a new one, Sound 
probiotics. And let me pull up the email I got from them. I'm really excited about this. So probiotics are the, well, bio, well your body runs on bacteria in your gut. And 70% of your immune system is in the bacteria in your guts. And so there's prebiotics and then there's probiotics. And basically prebiotics is the food. The probiotics is the actual, you can kind of spur the growth of the right kind of bacteria to make you uh, feel better and not get sick and to digest the right kind of foods. So you can create this really encouraging environment for them in your gut by taking probiotics. And it makes a huge difference. It's actually, it's almost kind of terrifying about how much of your body is actually bacteria. They think mitochondria are actually bacteria that your body's cells learned how to, to harness and use for our cells. And what's really cool about sound probiotics is that they're actually engineered more towards endurance athletes. So they've targeted this this isn't for little old ladies that are you know getting around on their walkers this is for people that listen to this podcast endurance athletes trying to go out there and kick ass so i'm really excited to bring this to you and they are shipping me a couple of sample bottles for me to try out so they're willing to work with zen and yard of triathlon and as friends and fans of the show i definitely want you to check them out it is sound probiotics and i'm a big fan of healthy food, healthy nutrition, and things that have actually been proven to work. And probiotics actually have been proven to work. They really do make you healthier and keep you from getting sick as much. And it's just really good stuff. So I'm really excited about working with them. When they emailed me and said, hey, uh, we're interested in supporting the show. And I said, I'm interested in you being interested. (laughs) Let's do this. I really like where you're coming from. All right, let's go ahead and mention some donations to the show. And if you donate to the show, I read your name on the show and I answer your questions. And I am super excited to mention James Godak, Matthew Heintz, Jason Drury, Connor Sanders, Todd Nelson, Brian Kemper, and Jeff Haining. And he said it's it's the donation actually came from Carrie Haining. And I say Carrie Honing by because that's the way it's spelled. And then uh, Jeff sent me a little note saying, hey, those, that's coming from my wife's account. That's, they're really from me. And so it's actually Jeff Haining, and I'm going to try to remember that from here on out. But I can imagine three, three shows down the road. I'm going <laughs> to forget. <laughs> anyway, Jessica Woodruff and Dan Machia and Todd Endicott and Allison Frutos and Grant Beauchert or Boshert, trying to get it right. And I got an email from Dwayne about Hornet juice. So those do- those donations I just mentioned are on the left side of the podcast website at zentrathlon.com. You can donate to the show either one time or create recurring. Donations really, really, really help. I just registered for Ironman Texas and for Galveston and for a 50-mile trail race, and I am now poor again. And show donations really help because I bring you race coverage and from doing the races, and I actually use the funds that come in from this to help pay for everything triathlon-related. Your donations are what paid the entry fees into these races. So they also pay for the, the food and fuel and everything 
that goes in the tires and the tubes and the watches and all the crazy gear that it takes to get this sport done. It helps pay for it. And I am eternally grateful for the donations and support to get this done. This, this sport is so freaking expensive and time selfish that this helps get it done. And because of your help, I'm able to bring you lots of news and reviews and, and training tips and how stuff works and nutrition tips and all that stuff uh, from while I, when I put it all into effect and podcast out, back out to you guys, what actually happens when you try to train like this and how to optimize your own life so that you can get this stuff done while holding down a job or trying to go pro or trying to Kona qualify or trying to lose weight and trying to do all that stuff, try to get faster, healthier, better, and yeah, and be safer, all kinds of cool stuff. So I really do appreciate it. So that's on the left side of the page. That's the PayPal donation. On the right side of the page, there's another way to help support the show is get Hornet Juice. Hornet Juice is this crazy stuff that is synthetic Japanese killer hornet saliva. And I'm not kidding you, first, what it is. And second, I'm not kidding you, that it actually works like a freaking beast, man. It is insane. It makes your body... It's an amino acid mix that turns on your body's metabolism to burn your body fat for fuel while you're working out. And it's insane. And it really does work. It works really well. And I got this email back from Dwayne. And he wrote, dude, I haven't had HJ, Hornet Juice, in a while and got my order in the other day. Did a 90-minute trainer ride with intervals and then in all caps, OMG, three exclamation points. I forgot how great that stuff is. Two exclamation points. Energy felt great for the f- for the entire workout. Two exclamation points. Thank you. And then in all caps, Dwayne. So thank you. And by the way, if you write me an email and put exclamation points in it, I read all the exclamation points. And yeah, that's... Uh, I know that's that's customer testimonial, but the stuff freaking works. It's really, 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 really good, especially for long workouts. It's good stuff. So that's Hornet Juice on the right. And I think we're going to get into the training log. And hey, I got a deal for you guys. If you want to get 15% off Amrita Bars, I'm looking for the link right here. AmritaHealthFoods.com. Amrita Bars, I've already eaten one today. I had it after my swim workout. And... They are super, super, super good. 15% off. And like I said, the guy that won Spartan Death Race, which is probably the hardest race that I've ever heard of in my entire life, uh, is sponsored by Amrita Health Foods and Amrita Bars. And I'm going to try to get him on a show. And it's just amazing how good these things are and how well they work. They're mostly dates. And then there's seeds mixed in and some other spices and stuff. And it ends up being perfect. It's like the perfect workout food to nibble on uh, and then also to snack on. And you got to hear about this Spartan death race. Listen, <laughs> listen to what they did. They, uh, it's either that the race goes until there's only 5% or 10%. I can't remember which one it is left. And so it can go on for two days, three days, four days until either 90% or 95% of the people drop out. That's how the race finishes. I freaking love that. That is insane. And Amrita <laughs> Amrita is eaten by the guy that won this thing and the guy that won the uh, quintuple Ironman. So I want to get him on the show to ask him about uh, the other stuff that he eats. So you can get 15% off Amrita bars 
and other Amrita stuff with discount code ZEN, Z-E-N, at AmritaHealthFoods.com. Go check them out, man. Really cool stuff. All right, let's go ahead and get started with the training log. I take you with me while I go out and train like a madman, and my son is now getting into it. Uh, has been for years, but now he's really, really getting out there. He's got his own uh, specialized road bike, and I take him trail running with me. A tree almost falls on us out in the woods. I talk about what I'm eating. I talk about how I'm training, stuff that works. And yeah, there's that. And um, yeah, and I should mention I'm doing Galveston 70.3 and Ironman Texas. And the other race is the Rocky Raccoon 50 miler. That's all coming up. All right. So let's go ahead and get started with the show. Oh, and the Hornet Juice is a... Um, that I mentioned earlier, those are packets that you can get on the right side of zentrathlon.com and um, one packet lasts an hour and a half or something like that, so it's actually a pretty good deal. So you can get, And you can get them in like four, four count, eight count, uh, 20 count, 30 count, stuff like that. He didn't mention that, sorry. All right, let's go ahead and get started with the training log and here we go. You are entering the Zentrite training log zone. Kuneli. Hi everybody, my name is Brett, I'm a trap. I decided it's time I got some friends more suited to my status. But Joe, we've been friends for years. Hey, we all make mistakes. Come on dudes, let's go exercise! Exercise! Yeah. I'm gonna do sit-ups till I poop myself! Hello, training log, starting. Running into the wind. Okay, cut it out. Start eight. 23rd of December. Christmas Eve Eve. And I'm trail running with Kai. We've got... We're 30 minutes into a two-hour run. Kai's on his mountain bike. And we're, we are in Sam Houston State Park where the Rocky Raccoon 100 is held. And I thought I'd start recording now while it's easy. <laughs> so I can laugh about it when it's really hard later. But we're running really easy. And, uh... Because <clears throat> today's an easy day. Yesterday I did hard intervals on the bike. So, today's... Nice and nice and easy. Oh, this trail is so full of roots in places, other places it's just wonderful, but both are good good, good and I took the day off from work because Kai was out of school and so I was going to stay home and watch him and then after a while I was like what can we go do that's not crowded with a whole bunch of annoying people and that's uh if I record myself falling down, that's going to be outrageous. And uh, I almost fell twice. And also, sheltered a little bit because it's a little cold. And it was going to rain just a little bit. And I said, uh, you know, it's like go to a mall or something like that. But also, it's not too expensive. Cheap and free and also good for the mind and for the soul and I thought let's go trail running because these pine trees 
really shelter you from the wind. It's hard to tell, Kai, but the wind is, you can hear it up high, you know? But down here towards the ground, that's a whole lot better. Big hill. Sit until you have to stand. Don't wear yourself out. And then take sitting breaks. Guy is freaking awesome at mountain biking. He just hopped off and I was running and pushing it. <laughs> so Kai is wearing the Sunto Ambit 2 on the handlebars and we're tracking him for his GPS. We'll probably post that later. And he's not trying. He's just riding at my speed running and I'm running really easy. So it's not going to be crazy impressive, but it is two hours. So that's pretty good. And the cool technology I'm using is I'm wearing the Garmin 920 XT and it does live tracking through your phone. So we'll see if it actually works or not. It does work. It, I've used it before, but while I'm recording, I don't know. Different apps start breaking things. You run too much at once. But as we got to the park, I posted a picture on Instagram. We're gonna look back 10 years and laugh at all these apps that we're using. They're gonna all be different. Like MySpace. <laughs> and of Kai with his mountain bike. Kai, is yours a specialized, what, hot rock? Specialized hot rock, 26 inch wheels. 26 inch tires. And what else has he got going on there? We put a slime tube in the rear tire because it went flat. And I used to mount bike all the time. And keep, hardly ever got flats because I put slime, slime in the tubes. And then it's got a suspension front fork. So he is happy, happy, happy. Earlier he was hooting and howling like a whoo! <laughs> Did y'all hear that? He does it back. When I do it, you do it back, okay? Woo! And, what is that? I'm running like a 12 and a half minute mile. Just keeping it easy. <laughs> if you want to run a 100 miler under 24 hours, you only have to run like a 14 and a half minute mile, something like that. So 12 and a half ain't bad. But I digress. So I posted um, from the app, the Garmin app, on the phone, I can tweet that I'm about to live track a workout, or I am live tracking, and here's a link. So that should work. And what else happens? And I've got it set up to email Emily and Morgan if it's live tracking. That way I know people that actually care about me <laughs> are gonna wonder if I'm missing. So will this work during a trail run race? I don't know. I bring my phone with me on the trail run race. It's nice to have. Listen to some music and and uh, 
call family to come medevac you out when you start throwing up every 10 minutes. So this is good. Everything good. Uh, fuel bottle. Running with a fuel bottle in hand. It's good training. And two 10 and a half, 10 and a half ounce water flasks. One on each hip attached. And the fuel bottle in the hand has got uh, 200 and about 250 calories per hour of maltodextrin powder, sea salt, and a little taste taste of honey to give it some nice flavor, and half of a Tums pill, a Tums tablet, so it doesn't bother your stomach. And yeah, it weighs in your hand, but once you get used to it, now you got an extra weapon where you can run really long because you got fuel on you. Oh, and so what we're doing is we're running. We parked at a trailhead that's got trails that go all different directions. It's got several trails. And we're running one out half an hour and turn around and come back half an hour, which works really well. So that's an hour. And then at the car, we reload on water and any food or fuel. I got some Amrita bars in there, other stuff. And then, uh, and sandwiches. And then if we, uh, oh, then we turn around and go out on a different trail for half an hour. Oh, that's soft right there. The pine needles feel good. And then turn around and come back. And that's two hours. And it's all good. So we'll report back in a little bit from this father-son little escapade. It's cool. I got to turn this off without falling down. How do I do it? I'm going to walk so I don't fall down. And stop. Where are you? There you are. Stop. All right, I'm back. <laughs> this is funny. So we're almost done. We got about 20 minutes left of a two-hour run. And... I pulled the trick on Kai. He, uh, he doesn't eat or drink anywhere near enough when he does this stuff. And then he gets grumpy, and then I tell him to do stuff, and he gets mad, and then won't do it. We have an argument. Yeah. So I, I doped his water. I laced his water. He's got a 20-ounce water bottle. I put 150 calories of uh, maltodextrin in it. <laughs> And maltodextrin, you can barely taste it. And so he, he started getting real quiet about an hour and hour and five, hour and ten minutes. And and I go, and then he goes, Woo! <laughs> I go, uh, he goes, I'm hungry. And I go, Oh, you should drink some of your water because it'll make you feel better. It'll make you feel less hungry. And I said, at the top of the next hill, he, so he drank like a tiny sip. I'm like, okay, at the top of the next hill, we're going to stand here, and you're going to drink. Until, and I pointed to a line on the bottle, like a quarter of it. Maybe not even that much, 20% of the bottle. And he goes, okay. So he sat there, I peed. He started drinking his water. I made him drink a bunch of it. And then just a few minutes later, he starts going, like Beavis, Beavis, 
and hitting trees with his hand and kicking them and then asking all kinds of crazy questions like daddy if you got any kind of bike in the world what would it be i'd have a road bike or maybe a mountain bike i don't know daddy are these trails made for mountain bikes like this and he just kept going on and on I was like, oh, and when he was drinking the water, he goes, this water doesn't taste right. I go, hmm, well, that's weird. <laughs> and he's like, does it, do you think it's because it's the bottle or something? I go, yeah, it must be the bottle that it's in. It must be old or something. <sighs> anyway, and then we are, uh, we're going along a few minutes ago. And I warned him about trees falling on the trail. You can see them. And all of a sudden, we heard this huge bang. It sounded like a gunshot. A couple hundred yards away. A little bit further, maybe. But almost like a gunshot. And then and then a crash. And I go, I bet that was a tree. And we were happened to be running in that same direction. And then we saw this huge tree, and you could smell the fresh wood from where it cracked and all kinds of stuff. And so we stopped and checked it out, and Kai goes, oh, it was probably a 70-foot tree. And Kai goes, holy crap. I was like, I told you. So if you hear a big bang, or it sounds like something's starting to fall, look up and around you quick. And... Whichever way, if it's coming towards you, just move to the side. Don't try to outrun it. All you gotta do is move a few steps to the side. How about that tree, Kai? Cool. Danger. Hear him, hear him go. He's going, dangerous. <laughs> So, fueling makes a difference, man. All right. We'll have more back at the car. Oh, I wanted to mention, um, I'm running in a, uh, and yesterday I did this too, or day before, running in, you know, the past 10 years or so, there's been these newer type of cotton t-shirts where they're real threadbare, they're real thin. Turns out they're great for running in at least cooler conditions because they're super comfortable. They don't chafe. They're so thin. They don't hold hardly any water at all. And uh, you might have a bunch of them laying around, you know, and they look cool and all that stuff. So, and they, they're tighter. You can get them that are more body fitting. So give it a try. All right. Hold on. Let me turn this off. All right, I'm back. I'm in the kitchen of the Zentri Training Lodge, <laughs> our house. And I don't know if you can hear it, but in the other room, Kai's on the treadmill. I, I did something pretty smart. He's just sitting there zoned out watching TV, you know, being a kid. You can hear the treadmill. That's him running. And <laughs> he kind of stutter steps and drags his feet a little bit. Um, and... <laughs> I, I just got done with the treadmill a few minutes ago. I was on the treadmill, and, you know, um, 
And I get, I get off the treadmill, and he's, he's sitting there zoned out watching TV. And um, I said, hey, go do something. You know, he's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, um, I got an idea. You can watch all the TV you want if you watch it on the treadmill. And this is the beauty of an iPad. So he's like, really? And I'm like, yeah, let's give it a try. You know, don't have to make it total rule right off the bat. But so set the iPad up on the treadmill and he picked out Johnny Test because he's 10 years old and he liked it. And he's start, started him off real slow and he's just sitting there jogging and I showed him how he can see how far he's run. And they run at school, you know, and they, they keep track of their mileage at, at uh, recess. They really do. I'm not kidding. And um, he knows how long a triathlon race is and stuff like that. And I showed him, I put it to 10% grade for a second for him to feel. Like, I'm like, you can make a hill and work up the hill if you get bored. And um, this is like really, really cool. It's a really cool way to entertain yourself. You can, don't have to watch cartoons. You could watch a science show and learn about, you know, uh, tigers or whatever. I don't care. As long as you're doing something. And you don't have to do it all the time. It's just like once a day you need to do something for like half an hour to uh, 45 minutes, probably, I guess. I'm just guessing at his age. And uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff online about training kids and how much is too much. And, and I actually went to a class on that. And uh, it's nowhere, it doesn't need to be much at all. So, and it needs to be fun. So um, anyway, so that's him on the treadmill. <laughs> and he'll probably do it for half an hour. Or right, right around that, and that's that's fine, dude. That's all. That's all he needs to do for today. But just something, you know. And then also, I wanted to say, um, I I just got off the treadmill running and had a great experience, and I want to tell you how and why I did it. And um, I hit PRs on treadmill speed, doing intervals and incline at the same time. And I I was running. I did uh, four intervals, um, about a minute each of, um, uh, well, first I went uh, running with Kai. He, he got on his bicycle and kind of pedaled along. I wouldn't even call it exercise. He's just kind of, you know, just loping along while I'm running. And But I took Kona with me, and Kona and I ran, my dog, uh, 30 minutes around. We got a neighborhood loop, loop that takes about 30 minutes to run if you run it slow. And then I um, finished that, and then I got on the treadmill to do my intervals. And... As soon as I got on the treadmill, um, and I had the treadmill set up before I left to go on the outdoor run, and um, so I just had to, I took a pee, you know, although I didn't take it with me anywhere, I left it. I took a pee and then uh, got on the treadmill, I had my water and a little, tiny little bit of honey, kind of fuel, malto honey fuel, in case I needed it, and then um, uh, immediately started hammering out intervals, and um, the last time I did this, I was blown away that I could actually do nine miles per hour at nine percent grade and that's been about four days ago and today I did 10 miles per hour which is a six minute mile at 10 percent grade like it is hard to find a hill that is 10 percent grade and I was running it at a 10 minute mile on the treadmill <laughs> I challenge you to get on a treadmill and try that just for like a few seconds. It is nuts. And I'm actually, I'm an okay runner. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good, but I am not freaking that good to just, you know, suddenly do that. I've worked up to that over time. 
And um, I remember in high school when I was like a sophomore or a junior, like I got last place in an 800. <laughs> of course, I was smoking at the same time because uh, I was at military school. But the um, anyway, this is something that you can do too. You can slowly, like I said, last time I could only do so much. And now this time I was actually a little bit faster. Four days later, it was faster. And um, so anyway, I'm really proud of myself that I did, I'm, I'm just blown away, 10 10 miles per hour, which is a six-minute mile, at 10% grade, and I held it for a minute. And um, next time, I'll be able to hold it for, you know, a minute and a few seconds. And that's the top end of the treadmill. It won't go any faster. And then next time, I'll be able to hold it for a minute and 10 seconds, let's say, and then a minute and 20 seconds. And eventually, let's say I could get up to holding it for two minutes, you know, doing intervals like that, three minutes or something like that, each one. I mean, that's nuts. You know, imagine you got that you got that power and that skill set under your belt, um, and then you go show up to run a 10k that's flat. I mean, you just destroy it, you know. But anyway, um, the bigger part of that that allowed that to happen was that yesterday was when Kai and I went and did all the trail running that you just heard. Is that I ran it super, super, super slow, super slow. So that when I ran today, I would be able to do, to do really hard, improving uh, intervals. And if I ran hard yesterday, then I would not be able to do that well on the treadmill today. And it's the stuff that I just did today that makes you faster. And I cannot stress enough how amazing it is that if you go slow... On your easy days, you build up mileage, you learn a little bit about fueling, you have a good time, you get a little bit of sanity, you know, um, just relaxing, and, and uh, uh, it's just nice, you know, like going really, really easy. But I averaged over a 12-minute mile, like a 12.10 or something like that, trail running yesterday. But I ran 10 miles, right, so I got in some volume, and I ran the uh, race course, which is of value, uh, the Rocky Raccoon, and... Um, you know, saw routes and, and uh, different ways of, of running the trails and stuff like that. And I got to spend time with my son, and it was, we called that one of our best trips ever. It was really, really cool. And um, again, 12 something minute mile pace on my easy day trail running allowed me to do, you know, crazy, crazy intensive intervals today. And, and that was two hours of running yesterday on trails, and, uh, but just going really, really, really easy. So I'm really proud of, of myself that I was able to do it, but it's a lot of discipline. And this is how you, if you're out there training, you can get an upper leg on your competition. It's the discipline on the easy days, not the hard days, because going hard and fast is actually pretty easy if you're well-rested. It's the discipline on the easy days that I'm just cracking up listening to Kai running on the treadmill. I'm going to cut him off at 45 minutes. Um, then uh, the, um, that allows you to do the stuff that makes you faster, right? So let's say that you, um, let's do the opposite. Let's say that yesterday I ran like a 10-minute mile and I got a good workout in, you know, and all that other stuff, like, you know, kind of wore myself out a little bit. Well, then if I got on the treadmill today, I'd probably top out, you know, uh, eight miles per hour at an eight-minute mile or something like that, right? Or eight miles per hour at 8% uh, grade. 
I can tell he stopped. Wait, he's back going again. Okay. <laughs> it squeaks every time he takes a step. It's funny. And then, um, so let's say that's, that's okay, but what your body learns by going as fast as possible and really pushing itself is how to fire the legs faster and how to run up your aerobic system and up your VO2 max so that you can actually go faster on race day. You're awakening the body and showing it what it can actually do, and you're pushing that top end way, way off the, off the front. So anyway, that's it. Uh, i got to wrap some Christmas presents. Talk to you later. Out, bang. All right. I did something really funny today. <laughs> it's just so awesome. It's called Strava hunting, and it's where uh, you go out on purpose trying to get king of the mountain on Strava. So Strava is a website where you can upload your workouts, and a lot of people use it. So it compares how well you did, how fast you went um, over segments. So segments are user-created, but once somebody makes one, everybody can uh, compare themselves against it. It's really neat. And uh, Garmin's trying to do their own, but Strava's the, the, the big boy that does it really well. And um, my, uh, I went out for a ride yesterday, pretty much an easy ride, just tooling around. And when I got done, I got home and I uploaded my workout and I got a notice from Strava that I got second place overall on this segment. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. So I went and looked at it. And I had a tailwind yesterday going down this segment, up the segment. It's net uphill. And um, then I saw first place is my arch nemesis, <laughs> Gary, <laughs> um, who like is king of the mountain. If you're the fastest, you're king of the mountain. If you're the fastest female, you're queen of the mountain. And then they can also break it down into age group and weight classes and all this other stuff. Uh, as a 40-year-old guy, 41-year-old guy, I fall squarely in the middle of, of uh, not needing classes and, and uh, age brackets and stuff like that. Um, so I was like, uh, oh, and so Gary was um, one second faster than me on this segment that um, he's he's been king of the mountain on since March of last year. And I looked at it, and this segment's been a segment. Somebody created it two years ago. So lots of people ride this thing. And, uh, and I was like, hmm, uh, you know, you don't want to revolve your life around this stuff. But I was sitting there thinking, man, I could go out tomorrow because I needed to do a hard bike ride the next day, which is today. And uh, I, for my hard bike ride, I could try and, and try to win the, the segment overall, the king of the mountain for the segment, as my intervals for my bike ride. So it, like folded nicely into a plan of what I needed to be doing for training and everything. And then I looked at the weather forecast and for, for today now, and uh, let's see what it actually is. Um, decent winds out of the south, at, and that's what I needed. Um, wind makes all the difference in these things. Uh, let's see. Let me see what I go to. Um, Oh, the winds dropped down to almost nothing. Oh, I just barely got it. The wind changed direction. Oh, this is so bad. So I was looking at it today going, oh, I have just like, uh, I think when I did it earlier today, um, 
I had like a 10 mile per hour wind from the south, maybe 15. And I was like, okay, um, I've only got a little bit of window and it was going to rain later in the day. So I only have this morning to do it. And, oh man, it was so exciting. You know, like the anticipation starts building up. One, can I do it? Two, the weather conditions have to be just right. And uh, three, you know, things have to line up. You have to have plenty of energy, which means you can't be tired or, or too sore or anything like that. And so I, uh, I told Emily this morning and Kai that I was going out to try to win a, a Strava segment. And they're like, oh, great. <laughs> Go have fun. And, uh, and they were like, who's first? I said, Gary. And they said, oh, no. And, um, but the thing is, is Gary's time wasn't, it's, it's not that fast. It's, uh, it's, uh, you know, just like a normal, like training ride. It didn't, it doesn't look to me like he was trying all that hard because I know his ability and it was not, um, near, uh, his ability. But the thing is, is the ride, the segment starts off downhill, uh, just for a moment, just for like uh, 30 seconds or something like that. And it goes through two intersections uh, underneath an overpass. And um, you have the right-of-way, but still it's sketchy. You know, like you're hoping that the other cars are going to stop at their stop signs while you go flying through. And so it's a little bit nerve-wracking. And I, uh, so I rode my bike out there as my warm-up. It took about 20 minutes to get there. And then I perched on top of the hill. And then I started bombing down this thing. And... Uh, the time I needed to beat was three hours and 43 seconds. So a permanent marker on my left arm, I wrote 342. So I wouldn't forget what exactly I needed to do. And that's that whole thing with um, don't think of breaking the, the uh, four-minute mile. What you do is think of running a 359. Set your mind on the target, not on what uh, you need to beat, but actually on the actual target that you want to do. So if if I did a 342, what does it say on my arm? Yeah, on my arm is written 342 because I needed to to beat a 343. So I go screaming down this down this hill to get up speed, and then boom! As I hit the uh, the sail through the first intersection, the uh, segment starts. So I hit the lap button on my computer, and then I uh, kept pedaling, and then it levels out to flat, and uh, then I cruise through it and climb up the next hill and then it goes down a little bit and then up another hill and it's uh like four percent grade and then a five percent grade just briefly and it's net uphill though and i go sailing through the end of the segment at um, i needed to do 342 and i do 318 and i'm like dang dude like i crushed it and so then uh, that's one interval right and so i turned around and pedaled back and it took about 10 12 minutes to pedal back to where to do it again and i do it again and this time i get it uh, uh oh it started it started raining <laughs> and, and there's there's bumps on this thing where you're flying downhill where you're just like holy crap um but again only the very beginning of it's downhill the rest of it is uh flat and uphill and it's 200 and something feet of climbing or something like that, I think. No, nah, I can't be. But anyway, um, I'll find it here in a second. I got it loaded up on my computer. But I'm telling you all this so that you get an idea. Like, um, you don't have to, um, you know, sign up for races and spend a ton of money and only go when the race is on for you to go, quote unquote, race. Uh, 
like you can look on Strava and find uh, a place. They're all these these segments are all over the place, and you can start training to take the king of the mountain or queen of the mountain, either overall or in your age group or something. Kai was looking at this, going. So like I could do this and I started looking and it seems like the youngest age group is 25 and under, which is not really fair. But I said, yeah, you know, they have a weight class of under 25, 125 pounds. And so he was like, oh, this is really cool, you know. So um, what I wanted to, to tell you was that is that it's really cool as far as motivation and inspiration to, to train for something. And um, because after I did this on my way home, I almost took another segment, um, which is, uh, I think, is what I'm going to train for next is to try to take this one because it's about the same amount of time. And so anyway, I went through the uh, I went through the segment again the second time. Um, and this one I did three minutes and 10 seconds. I beat the um, I beat the uh, Gary's 343, you know, by over half a minute. And I was like, cool, man. And after then the rain started really coming down. And I was like, you know what? I'm done. This is getting dangerous. It was getting really freaking dangerous because I'm flying through on that first downhill through the through the couple of intersections that I'm like, uh, you know, cars probably not going to see me because of the rain on the windshield. And it's going to um, I'm going to get hit or something like that. So on the way home, I did it. That's when I did another segment and uh, almost got that one within uh, seven seconds. But um, check out these numbers of what polarized training, doing hard intervals, can do for you. Um, on the uh, the segment where I did 310, my fastest one, my second effort at this, I did, um, first off, I, down, what does it say, downhill? Yeah, uh, it's a 2% grade downhill. It's a, that's it, just 2% grade. <laughs> <laughs> I hit 40.5 miles per hour, like screaming down this thing over three minutes and 10 seconds. My average cadence was 99, right? And so that's what, um, doing high speed intervals can train you to go at a higher cadence. And then, uh, average heart rate was 166, but my max heart rate was 168. So my heart rate jumped up and then I kept it high for that, uh, just over three minutes and then um, power is relative to how big you are and stuff. But my average power was 349 watts of uh, oh elevation gain, uh, 43 feet. Yeah, uh, 349 watts. So basically 350 watts for, for three minutes. And, um, and yeah, that's polarized training. That's like really focusing on being strong and then being able to use it when you need it. And... Uh, Strava hunting. They even they even have uh, t-shirts that you can get. Uh, Strava hunter t-shirts and or segment hunter. And I really encourage you to um, go out and find it because Emily was kind of teasing me a little bit. She's like, uh, uh, "So this is what you're doing now, huh?" <laughs> like, hey, it is cheaper than entering a race. All I got to do is just kind of look at the wind, so I get a little bit of assistance because that's when the other people set their records too. And then uh, I go out there and challenge myself, and it makes me uh, it makes me better. And then um, your best way, the best way to improve yourself is to find people that are just a little bit faster than you, and then you try to take them on. And with this, um, with Strava, it breaks down the um, 
the it breaks down everybody into categories so you can try to take it the king of the mountain from somebody in your age group and then you just try every once in a while and then try every once in a while and eventually you'll get there and that'll make you a better athlete because you've been racing quote unquote you know and racing is results it's pretty cool anyway i'm i'm super stoked i had a beer after i was done cuz i was high on life man it felt it felt amazing to do it um, to know that I took it, uh, I think there's a Strava app for the, for the iPhone and Android and all that stuff where it can tell you live, um, that you're about to hit a segment and then also, um, that you, how well you did on that segment, uh, live on your phone, I think. But, uh, anyway, that's it. Out bang. All right. I am back and it is Monday after Christmas and I swung by the house for lunch and I'm um, heading back, let the dogs out. Who let the dogs out? And have a, a whole bunch of cool little things to talk to you about. One, I uh, on my road bike, I have a Garmin um, bike pod uh, all-in-one device. You know, it's like a speed and cadence sensor. It's all-in-one. And the Ambit 2 will actually talk to that because the Ambit 2 will talk ant. And... So I cut it, it's on there with zip ties. I cut off the zip ties and mounted it to Kai's new bike and then put the Ambit on his handlebars. And I'm thinking we're going to use that for his bike computer for a while at least. And, uh, you know, the, the Ambit has so, you can create modes and all kinds of cool stuff. So I set up the screens and everything so that he's got um, speed and... <laughs> And it'll work indoors or outdoors. If he's outdoors, it'll switch over to GPS. And if he's indoors, it'll use um, the the cadence uh, sensor, the uh, the rear wheel, the rear wheel. And all oh, that reminds me to talk about the Garmin thing. I don't know if the Ambit does this, but I'll tell you in a second. But the um, but as a kid, you know uh, how fast you're going and how far you've gone is like probably the most important thing. So I set it up to show that, and then also the time, and I think he'll be good to go. And what's cool is it'll work, uh, and then it'll work GPS for outside, and I can show him a map of where he went. And now, riding his bike is like an adventure, and he can look at, I can upload the workout when he's done, and he can see what he did. And that'll motivate him to, um, you know, ride his bike more than if he didn't have all that because now he knows what he's doing. He can kind of compare himself and stuff and get into a habit. I was telling somebody at work, um, I do not want him to turn into a workout nut. Uh, what I want for him to do is to get in a habit of doing something uh, every day, something exercise every day, no matter what it is. Break a sweat for at least half an hour and then um, and get in that habit and then also use it as a stress reducer you know, to take a break from homework and stuff like that, make you feel good and, uh, learn how his body works and stuff like that. Um, until pro triathlon pays, you know, as much as the NBA, (laughs) I don't think it's a good investment, uh, to worry too much about being a pro triathlete, but as a, uh, as a thing to stay healthy and fit so that your brain works better so you can get a good job. And possibly work in the sports industry or something like that. It'd be kind of cool. But anyway, uh, or as a coach or something like that. Anyway, the um, 
the other thing was my buddy Gary was asking me about the Garmin 510 and oh I, I wanted to mention that a little bit about uh, modern at least very recent bike computer technology is uh, the Garmin's do this I'm not sure if the Ambit or the Polar does this but I know the Garmin's do um, the 920 uh, when I first started riding with it it calibrated how big the rear wheel is from me riding out in fact I'm pretty sure the Ambit does this The uh, from me riding outdoors it goes um, okay I can tell uh, how many times your wheel has revolved and I can tell the distance that you went so that tells me about how big your rear wheel is so then when you ride indoors it knows how big your, rear, your wheel is so every revolution can tell you how far you've gone which is pretty cool little trick that it uses outdoor GPS to uh, come up with those numbers. Um, another thing is the uh, the 920 does live tracking, the 510 does live tracking, I don't know about other devices, but uh, your phone probably has a ton of apps in it that you can buy that does live tracking. And so Gary was talking to me about... Um, man, Iron Man needs to allow these things to be used during the race. And I said, well, in the meantime, just turn on the tracking app anyway and just don't make a big deal out of it and tuck it back away uh, and just turn it on when, when there's no... Um, uh, when there's no uh, uh, refs around and it shouldn't be that big of a deal. And actually, the thing I forgot to tell him is... Uh, dude, if it's a long enough race that you're going to actually need tracking, then it's a long enough race where you can pull over to the side, you know, and take 30 seconds and turn that on, <laughs> you know. Uh, somebody, I mentioned it one time and somebody said, do it in the uh, transition area, you know, just pull, pull out your phone, turn on the live tracking app, and then put the phone back, have your phone in a life-proof case or a... Um, a uh, little Ziploc. I use a Ziploc. Uh, the snack size Ziploc works great. Put it in there and then you're done and then just forget about it for a while. And then your family knows uh, where you are out on the bike course and um, so they can estimate about what time you're going to get back so your family's not wondering where you are um, when they're coming to see you at the bike inn, for example, of the... Um, of the uh, of the Ironman, I know at Ironman Texas, for example, the run loop is three loops, and it's a complicated loop. They could actually see where you are on the run course; it would be kind of cool. And I'm trying to think what else I was going to talk about. Um, a coworker got uh, longboard skateboards, and they like stand up paddleboarding a lot. And I said, "Hey, there's a a big stick, a Kahuna big stick, is what it's called. You can look it up on the internet." And you can use it to push yourself around and uh, like your stand-up paddleboarding and on a skateboard. And uh, you'd go take your skateboard to like a nice subdivision where the roads are nice and smooth and there's plenty of streets and stuff and, and wide spaces. And it is a blast, man. It's super cool. And uh, she and her husband don't have the stick. So I'm going to uh, take... I have one, so I'm bringing it up to work to... Um, 
to let them borrow it for a while. It was just sitting in my garage. I haven't used it in a few weeks and or months maybe. And then the last thing I have was I was listening um, to some motivational, educational podcast stuff and anti-procrastination. And there's, um, I heard the coolest phrase that has, I heard it a few days ago and it has just stuck with me and I wanted to share it because it might be, you never know what's actually going to work for you. And the, the, uh, it went like this is basically you can have all the to-do lists and prior prioritizing this and do that and whatever, um, that you, that, that is available and you can implement all these and it won't change. It'll kind of change what you're doing, but not really. It'll just show you that you're not doing it well. You have, instead, you have to emotionally become a different person. And the emotionally become a different person that seems to work the best, you have to become a different person. And all the to-do lists that you use and then fail to execute will show you that you're still not, don't have your crap together yet, um, and you're not a different person yet, that... um, What was the last thing? Ah, sorry, I got distracted. I'm trying to park my car. <laughs> but the, uh, oh, I'll park right here. <clears throat> the emotional person you need to be, really, that pays off, is you need to learn to do the high-value stuff first. And they're, the things that are high-value are actually, usually... Um, almost always the exact, the polar opposite of what is easy and what is, uh, what has your attention, uh, or what grabs your attention. So high value would be to put your money and go put some money into the bank. Well, that's not interesting. You know, it's fun and interesting and convenient now is to go spend your money on a new Garmin 920, man. Oh, <laughs> Right? That would be the coolest thing to do right now. So if it's easy and it's quick, it's usually the wrong thing to do. And if it's uh, not exciting and uh, you know long and takes endurance to freaking do it, that's actually, you can build up a habit, just like eating healthier foods can become a habit. You can build up a habit to get those things done first. And what those things do is actually create more time in your life. The things that's, that are hard up front actually give you more time and money and multiply your time and money um, on down the road. So putting away your dishes now um, takes the same amount of time as putting away your dishes later, right? But except putting away your dishes now cleans off the countertop so that you can actually find your car keys. Will you something that happens to me every once in a while? Um, you can actually find your car keys that you put on your countertop in the middle of all that mess or your phone or whatever. And now you're not digging around searching for your car keys, which has now become a crisis because you, your dishes are all piled up and stuff. And yeah, so doing the hard thing up front creates space and time and money for you to better execute uh, other stuff on down the road and it ends up multiplying 
your time and your ease and de-stressing and, and your money. It's pretty cool. So I thought I'd leave everybody with that. Oh, and my watch just buzzed. <laughs> oh, we might have a new sponsor for the show. We'll have to find out. I just got an email earlier. I got to check it out. All right, out. Bing. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up the training log and wrap up the show. I really want to get this diamond interview out to you guys. It's so freaking cool. And I thought I'd wrap up the show with a few things. Um, One is the training that I did yesterday and today. This will help you out. And then an answer to a swimming breathing question, breathing frequency by somebody I coach. And both are really, really good. And a, a very minor, minor announcement about a race I'm doing coming up. Okay, so the uh, training thing is I was going to, today's Saturday, and I was going to run Friday night or bike. I didn't really decide. Um, and then as you do more and more training, you learn to balance things out and not get so tied down to, well, it's Friday, so I'm going to run because I run every Friday. Instead, you say, okay, my legs are a little bit sore from cycling, so, and I swam this morning, so let's, um, let's run, right? Uh, you do the right thing for your body at the right time. Well, it was getting to be Friday night, and I thought, my legs are just sore from everything, <laughs> and I'm a little bit tired, so let's not work out at all because Saturday I can actually put in a big day if I, a big continuous day, and I'll have a better training result because remember you're training your body. I'll have a better training result on Saturday if I don't drive myself further into the ground Friday evening. And that's what I did. So I took Friday night off and then today, Saturday, I had a fantastic ride and then run. What I did is a two-hour ride and then a one-hour run, and I did it all at mild to moderate intensity uh, to test out fueling, and I did maltodextrin powder and honey, almost 50-50, uh, pretty much two-thirds malto, uh, one-third honey, um, with the tiniest bits of salt, sea salt in it, and I made a three-hour bottle, and I drank about two-thirds of it while I was on the bike, and uh, and then the last third of it I poured into a flask, a gel flask, and then ran with it. And I love this because it's super cheap. And the uh, instead of buying gels, which is super expensive when you actually look at it. And then I just sipped on it as needed to feel good. And then uh, with uh, about half hour left on the bike, I cut back to nothing. And then when I hit the run... I took off running, and and uh, you know I'm always bitching on this show about how Emily puts away my stuff. I can't ever freaking find it. So she's, I get off the bike, and I'm trying to get my stuff together to go run. And so the lesson for tomorrow is have my stuff to go run before I get on the bike. Uh, and now she's put my running shoes away in a new place, totally new place that she's never put them before, but they're put away, you know, so I can't see them. <laughs> and I'm yelling at her. She's in the shower. I'm like, where's my freaking running shoes? And she's like, I put them in your closet. I'm like, but they were always in the front room by the treadmill. She goes, well, you put your other shoes in your closet, so I put those there too. And I'm like, oh my God, tell me before you do this kind of stuff. And then she yells at me, you know, and it ends up being, uh, it'd be comical if it wasn't so annoying. And uh, and I'm like, Emily, I'm trying to test out like running after biking 
And the longer I take to get out there, the the dumber the all that time, two hours I put in on uh, on uh, on the bike it gets wasted uh, because I need to go off on the run, you know, to simulate a transition. Anyway, I'm over it. But the uh, bike ride because she does put all my crap away, so uh, in a good way. And uh, on the bike ride, I watched. Um, the interview, which is the North Korean movie that North Korea hacked into Sony, supposedly all about whatever. And I, I, uh, I don't want to give my money to you know the cause of World War III, but at the same time, I was raised in a family where I was taught by very well educated people that all around me that you you should know what culturally relevant things are just because you watch it doesn't mean you have to have an opinion on it um, you should know what it is so that when people are talking about it you um, uh, you get the references and you get them because a lot of people don't say I am now talking about the interview oh Rigby you know or whatever the name of that dog was uh, Bigsby or something like that in the in the movie um, or shooting a cannon shooting a, a helicopter with a tank, it melts your face off, ha, ha you know. And so people talk about the item and but without really saying, you know, like people quote Shakespeare all the time, but they don't say, I am now talking about Shakespeare, <laughs> you know. So, um, and also you should expose yourself to things before you get an opinion on it. Um, so the movie has is for rent on YouTube for like five or six bucks, and it was almost two hours long. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll see this thing so that when people are talking about it, I don't, I understand what they're actually even talking about. Because it, it's so easy, it's so easy to see it. And this is a good time to see it. And I need to entertain myself. So the movie itself is just a classic, uh, a dumb uh, comedy with uh, sexual references and over the top and, you know, everything like that. Um, uh, should they have made it about a, a Nobody should make a movie about a, a person like so meanly um, about them, of course. Um, so, of course, that person's going to get pissed off. And since that person runs an entire country, then, yeah, they're going to, you know, try to stop it and all that other stuff. So after seeing it, you can totally understand and knowing world politics, you can understand why things fell out the way that they have so far. And then at the same time, you can be like, it's just a movie, man. Calm down. And anyway, it goes a whole lot deeper than that. But that's a podcast. This is a podcast about triathlon and endurance. So it's not about movies and world politics. But the um, the cool thing was with the time went by uh, pretty good. And uh, so if you want to kill um, almost two hours on the trainer, then uh, and you haven't seen the interview yet, uh, you could check it out. I'm not saying you should, but you could. And then... Also, let's see this. Oh, and then on my run, I felt fantastic. And uh, sipping the fuel on the run and everything with that half hour tapering off, no fuel at the, the at the end of the bike ride um, worked fantastically. So I highly recommend it. It seems to be a huge key to um, why I might uh, do better on the um, on future races, if, if that shakes out that way. Oh, and I've talked to somebody secretly about uh, improving my fueling, and that's, that's what led to this. So we'll reveal who that is in later shows. Okay, and then somebody it's important, somebody important, somebody that you'll know. And then, 
Let's see, the question about swimming, uh, Joe R., uh, that I coach, is asking about how frequently should I breathe uh, while swimming, and I actually have figured this out. I'm so glad that he emailed me this question because this is something I can share the answer with because I've tried different things, and coming from a swim background, I know exactly the answer to this. Okay, if you breathe just on one side, um, you'll end up being uh, a twisted swimmer. Like uh, You'll be contorted a little bit to one side. You'll end up bending your body, and swimming on both sides in practice will straighten you out so you get in the habit of swimming uh, straighter uh, and more balanced and you're less prone to injury and all that other stuff, right? Okay, the problem is, is the faster you go, um, the more air you need and you reach a point where when you're trying to go fast, you'll need to breathe, uh, you might need to breathe every stroke. And it depends on how conditioned of a swimmer you are, how fast you're trying to go, you know, the distance of the race, things like that. So, um, to back up, breathing both sides is good because it teaches you good form. Um, and you can breathe both sides as long as you don't need the air. But there's going to come a point where if you're trying to go fast, you're going to need more air. The, the interesting thing that throws a wrench in this is at what point you need to, to switch over to single-sided breathing, breathing, on my, in my case, on my right side entirely, has to do with... Um, how fast your stroke turnover is naturally. Now, if you have short arms, your stroke turnover is fast, faster than somebody with long, lanky arms, right? So telling you at what point, at what speed or anything like that um, to start breathing uh, single side um, doesn't work. It doesn't work for everybody. So telling you what to do actually you know, technically by numbers actually doesn't, uh, isn't good. What you have to do is realize when you start, uh, needing a little bit more air, um, you switch over to a single side and don't, don't feel bad about it because you need more air. And as, uh, Joe's question says, uh, Matt Dixon is, uh, who's a great coach, um, uh, he recommends not limiting your breathing because the negative effects of not breathing outweigh the technical gains. Correct. So what I coach people to do is bilateral breathe while going easy, and that'll clean up your your form and your technique, and that's all the air that you need anyway. When you start going hard, then start breathing single side, and you can breathe, breathe single side on your right, breathe single side on your left. Now, the thing is, is what's hard depends. It totally depends, and that's okay. If that's okay that it depends because as you get better, what point that is, you don't want to be tied to a specific number or specific pace because as you get number, as you get better, your your depends is going to change. You're going to get faster, and how much air you need is going to change. And you can watch the classic video of Sun Yang swimming, and he's breathing. He's so fast, and his swim stroke is so beautiful, and... They're swimming, uh, and it's a long, it's like a 1500 or something like that, and he's breathing um, almost all the time. He's breathing uh, single side on, on one side. Um, he So the thing is, is his turnover is a little bit slow, so his single side is kind of like, it's still really aerodynamic, 
because when um, let's say you're t you have long lanky arms and your turnover is a little bit slower well breathing single side is still pretty efficient because you're not coming up for air quite as much as somebody that's uh, short arms single uh, single side breathing that's got a higher turnover rate right so somebody that's got a higher turn got a higher turnover rate if they breathe every single time they may not need to breathe breathe every single time because it's more frequently because they got a higher turnover rate um, so that person may find that they can mix it up they do a little bit of of uh, bilateral and then a little bit of single side as needed and then you watch uh, sprint freestyle racing and uh, when I used to do that, you don't breathe until you need air. And you don't need air until almost the other side of the pool. You might take a couple of breaths um, by the time you get to the other side. And then on the way back, um, you start breathing uh, a little bit more frequently. Let's say you're doing a 50 sprint uh, a, a little bit more frequently. And, um, but not every, not every stroke, right? So... Um, you let your breathing uh, be dictated by the pace that you're going and how much air that you that you need. And Matt Dixon is right. You shouldn't limit your breathing on purpose to um, uh, to to just to do bilateral breathing. Okay. So practice it in training, and you'll be able to see how it works. I've done races where on purpose to slow myself down. I've I've done bilateral breathing, and it was almost as fast, and it was more relaxed. Um, but I could have swam faster if I did single-sided breathing. Um, and I've got long arms, so my turnover rate's slow. So my single-sided single, my single breathing um, is not as frequent as somebody else's. Like uh, Jody Swallow has short arms, so shorter arms than mine. And so her uh, single-sided breathing is really, really frequent. But she's freaking hammering on the swim, so she probably needs more air anyway. So it's okay. All right. I remember my brother was a um, swim team captain in uh, college, and I asked him one time. I go, "Do you do you breathe uh, single side? Do you breathe uh, every side every time on one side, or not, uh, or like every other side?" And he goes, "Oh, I don't know. I don't really remember. <laughs> it's not something people think about that are really really good. They just breathe as needed." Um, okay, then. Let's see. I was going to mention, oh, to wrap up the show, uh, a little bit of announcement. Um, I have just finished registering a couple days ago for the Rocky Raccoon 50-miler trail run. Um, I'm not going to – I found that doing the 100 takes so much run training that it takes away from bike training. And um, I really want to keep improving my bike like I have been. So I signed up for the 50, and I am going to listen to – I did really well in the last 50 that I did, and I'm going to listen to my old podcast that was produced in February or so of 2013 is the last time I did a 50-miler, and I did really well, and so I'm going to listen to it again to see if I mentioned any fueling tips in there because um, I tend to mention that kind of stuff in shows after a race, and if I find them in there, I'll recap for everybody um, what I did so that, uh, so that I can share it with everybody. So, uh, with the Garmin, it does live tracking on, uh, and what I'm going to try to do is we'll see, 
I'll probably do some testing ahead of time, but it's getting close. It's on February 7th. We'll see if it'll last the, um, you know, nine hours is a really, really good time on, uh, on this trail run race. And so if I, um, if I can get it to last, if through testing that I can determine that it's going to last the entire run, then I'll do live tracking or live tracking for parts of it. You know, I don't, I'd hate to have live tracking and then have to turn it off halfway through, but maybe I'll do that too. Um, so that people can watch, uh, pace and incline and all that crazy crap that goes on with doing a trail run race live. It'll be super cool. Anyway, that's it for this episode. We've got, uh, lots more stuff coming up, interviews and training as the uh, spring season gets heated up and we get rocking and rolling here with 2015. So everybody stay safe out there. Work the uphills, cruise the downhills, and keep the rubber side down. Out.